This is what's wrong with American Idol. So uh, it's going to get a little warm in here. You know. Uh, by the way, if you're looking for a specific answer of what's wrong with American Idol, you might not get that. Uh, yes. um, and actually, the purpose of this is not to American Idol, uh, but it's, it's, it's rather to, to talk a little bit about popular culture and the effect that it's, uh, the media is having on popular arts. So, uh, when I first decided I wanted to do this, you know, this lecture called What's Wrong with American Idol, what caused me to desire to do this was uh, several years ago, uh, the Rolling Stones were the halftime act of the Super Bowl. Many of you probably remember that, okay? Because everybody watches the Super Bowl. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, you know, not, I don't have any particular dislike for the Rolling Stones or for any band that's playing music that they enjoy playing and, and have been playing as long as the Rolling Stones have been playing. That's admirable. That's great to be able to work that long in this business. My issue was the way that the, the announcer announced the Rolling Stones. Uh, one of the anchors from ESPN announced that, and I quote, and now for the greatest rock band in the world, the Rolling Stones. And it's that statement that caused me to uh, cringe thinking about how wrong that statement was from an, uh, an objective perspective in practically every way that we can think of, musically and otherwise. Now, I would say that if you want to say as far as record sales, then I'd say the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock band in the world. But the last time I checked, the Rolling Stones were a British band. And rock and roll is an American art form. So how did a British band become the greatest rock and roll band in the world? So from an authentic, from an authenticity standpoint, the statement fails. From an objective perspective, the statement fails. Because, I mean, we all know musicians that have better intonation, that sing better. You know, we, we all know musicians just within the school of music that have a much higher degree of musicianship. And I know some, uh, some friends in particular that play in rock bands and just from an objective perspective, everything is better. Consistent tempo. I mean, we, we, we can go on and on about this. So my issue is that the media continues to represent things in a way that is false. But since everyone pays attention to the media, since it's on television, there is a sense that it is true. I mean, and it is good. If you hear it on the radio, the implication is that it is of quality. 
that it is the best that that our nation has to offer, but it is just totally false. Um, the second thing that happened that also just egged me on and made me desire even stronger that I must do this lecture uh, was a long time ago on TRL, MTV. host of the show, the host of the show, gave the microphone to an audience member to announce Britney Spears. And the announcement went something like, oh, the greatest female vocalist on the planet, Britney Spears. Okay. Now, from all objective criteria, this is a false statement. But did the host of the show correct what was stated? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. All right? So um, those are two events that uh, stand out in recent history that uh, made me feel that I needed to pursue this more. Let's talk a little bit about artistic integrity and authenticity. Uh, Dave Matthews uh, was before the music guys as a documentary film. Uh, very well done. A lot of artists, all kinds of folks uh, collaborated on this. Uh, big names, people that you may not know, uh, and also you know, name artists like Dave Matthews, Brantford, Marcellus. Uh, Erica Badu, a long list of people. And I'm going to be quoting uh, from that movie later on uh, some more. But Dave Matthews said, to find a way to do what you love to do. Because then if you get paid or not, it won't matter. Then if you get paid or not, it won't matter. He also said, if making a lot of money is the goal, then you shouldn't do it. If your goal is money and fame, there are a lot easier ways to do that. Just go on Fear Factor or something. Okay? So, for Dave Matthews, even as wildly uh, successful as they are, he didn't get in this to be famous or to make money. He got it because he loved the music. And so, I have nothing against people that play popular art forms. That's fine. Popular music... Uh, a lot of it is good music. My issue is uh, the specific and particular pursuit of fame and fortune and using arts as that mean. That's the issue that I have. I think that it is profoundly wrong. So that's, uh, that's uh, what I believe. So, authenticity. What makes something authentic? In the before thing I was talking about, about the Rolling Stones, is it possible for a British rock band to be the greatest rock band in the world, even though rock and roll is an American art form? Is it possible? I mean, this is, these are questions to ask yourself. You know? Uh, I don't think that it's possible, even if 
British rock band was more precise in recreating, it wouldn't be more authentic. Could it be? I don't think so. And uh, so, and actually, if you think about it, rock and roll is nothing but rhythm and blues by white musicians. That's basically what rock and roll is. And so they even thought they had to change the name of it because they thought it couldn't be really authentic R&B, right? So let's create a new genre of music. The degradation of the arts. Okay, so if you listen to the popular arts, if you listen to the popular arts in the last 40, 50 years, you'd have to note a significant, a significant degradation in the popular arts. You'd have to notice this. Consider in the 60s with Motown, there's a lot of real music going on. High artistic integrity. In fact, uh, Barry Gordy was very intelligent using very skilled jazz musicians on most of those recordings and in the touring bands because the music that he was presenting required that kind of musicianship. Okay? Your average pop band now, there's not very much musicianship that's required. Well, well, well heck, let's talk about Britney Spears, for instance. How much musicianship does it really take to perform a Britney Spears song? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. In Motown, Britney Spears. Motown, Britney Spears, right? So there's a there's a big big difference here. Now I think, you know, I want to talk a little bit about part of what has caused this to happen. It is this lowering to the uh, least common denominator, the lowest common denominator, right? The lowest common denominator. Let me find something that everybody can relate to, play it on the radio over and over and over until people want to go and buy that recording, right? And actually, they discovered this, psychologists, discovered that if you took a song and you played it over and over and over on the radio, that people would eventually like it. And the record companies used that information to make a lot of money. They kept playing it and playing it and playing it. The first major uh, experiment, uh, experiment that the record companies used the media to create a mega star was the Beatles. That was the first really just ridiculous mega star. Mega star was the Beatles. Post Beatles, it's not even possible to reverse back to a time when the media is not so involved in either making or breaking an artist. Okay. Um, so 
back in the day, record companies could be patient and take their time with an artist. They'd be patient. They'd allow an artist to go through different phases. Right? An artist could decide, hey, I want to do more of this right now. I want to do more of that right now. Now, that is not an option. The image is established and specifically created, and then you have to stay within that particular parameter to continue in the same level of success. And as soon as your numbers dip below a certain number, they're going to take your contract with them. This has happened to several, several artists. Erica Badu said that longevity is now determined by how much money you make and how many fans buy your records. Right? Now she's she's been pretty successful, Erica Badu. Pretty successful. She's been around 10, 15 years or something. I mean, she's been around a long time and uh, recorded a lot of records. She's on radio all the time. Right? And this is what she thinks. Um, Quest Love from The Roots said that art is art and commerce is commerce. Once you understand that this business is commerce, then it makes sense. Okay? So in other words, the record industries anymore are not mostly, not all, I can't speak about all, but the majority, and in particular the big record companies, are not about the art. They're about the commerce. They're not about the art, they're about the commerce. Now, uh, everybody knows uh, the Clear Sound. It's a radio uh, corporation that owns all these radio stations, and everything's pretty cookie cutter. And uh, they're able to basically control largely what people have a, a taste for, because they continue to pump the same thing at the same time during drive time, and uh, you know between, say, 5 o'clock and seven o'clock or something, and in the morning when people are going, going to work, they have it down to a science. They know exactly how to create a desire for people to purchase a certain recording. And so they're very aggressive and specific about that. But there's a growing number of people that are becoming a little dissatisfied with that. And that's actually why we have satellite radio. XM. XM radio, right? Satellite radio. That's why you said satellite radio, because people got tired of the same stuff they played. They wanted more options. They wanted more kinds of music, more different selections, a, more, a wider diversity of things. And so I believe that Clear Sound is going to find themselves in trouble if they don't start making some changes. Uh, Branford Marcella said that Peter Gabriel or Sting wouldn't get a shot now. And what he meant was that as great as those groups are and as wildly popular as they were, the record companies allowed them to go through stages. They allowed them to say, I want to do this kind of music right now. I want to do this kind of music for a while. Branford is convinced that that couldn't happen today. Of course, Brantford's had a major record contract, and Brantford was the, uh, the uh, music director on The Tonight Show for several years. He's also the brother of Wynton Marcellus. 
um, who, by the way, went to Marcellus. Can you believe this? Went to Marcellus actually got dropped from a record label. Wynton Marcellus got dropped from a record label. Can you imagine this? Freddie Hubbard got dropped from a record label. Freddie Hubbard got dropped from a record label. I mean, I can go on and on. But you consider the high level of musicianship and artistic authenticity there. And for those artists to get dropped by a record label, it's like, wow. What is expected? Well, it's like, it's like Questlove said, art is art and commerce is commerce. And once you understand that this business is commerce, then it makes sense. It's not about the art. Understand that the record business is a business. It's primarily a business. It's not a, you know, a philanthropist that decided they wanted to support the arts. And, you know, no, that's not what it is. It's a business. It clearly is a business. Now, I want you to consider this also. Because a lot of times you, you hear people say this in, in, on the mainstream radio, Clear Sound, you know, and other radio stations that basically are mimicking what Clear Sound is doing. You hear a lot of times, you'll hear people say, oh, I like such and such an artist because they're so different. I like such and such an artist because they're so different. What's interesting to me is if, if the only musical experience that I've had or the main musical experience is listening to the radio and there's a very specific strategy and way that they're trying to to use the music to make money, and there's a specific parameter that they have to operate within to continue to uh, you know the whole lowest common denominator. To to think that one artist is that much different than another artist seems to me to be uh, you know I want I, I wonder about that sometimes. How much different really are they? Now, because when I think of people that are different, I mean, Woody Shaw was different. That was different. Charlie Parker was different. You consider how much different Charlie Parker was from everyone else that came before him. Mozart was different. You know, uh, I mean, we can go. We we can we can just keep keep going down. Little Richard, Little Richard was different. These artists are different. What that's happening in music right now in the mainstream media is really different. Or is it different because it's using things that people are not familiar with? Or is that causing anything different? Just something to think about. Uh, one thing, you know, about being educated about being educated about not just what's going on in music right now, but what's what has gone on in music over the last several decades. One thing that's important about that is an artist that is trying to to move to the next level is is trying to add something new to what they're doing has an information base that is large enough to educate them as to if they're recreating the wheel 
or if they're actually onto something new. That's why we study history. That's part of the reason. We also study history so we don't repeat the same mistakes. But in our society, which is a very fast society, we seem to not really understand what's going on. Uh, there's a documentary film, and this is actually about the last election, uh, called Media Malpractice. And although there are some biased opinions in the film, I think it does point out something that I think is, is uh, worth noting. That uh, two of the, that, that the people that voted, that the people that voted in the election that were questioned, knew nothing, practically nothing, about any substantive issues. All they knew about was things that were scandal, things that the media blew up to be big, big issues that were maybe dumb things that somebody said, or things of that nature, trivial, goofy stuff. But none of the substantive issues, every question about any substantive issue, none of the people interviewed knew anything about Every trivial issue, 80, 90% of them knew the whole thing, the whole story. That's, that's where we live, where the real issues are, 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 are playing second or third chair to, uh, to a lot of uh, stuff that is pretty foolish. Let's ask the question, what is art? What is art? That's a pretty profound question. The quality, this is what the dictionary says, the, pro, the quality, according to dictionary.com, the quality, production, expression, or realm, according to aesthetic principles of what is beautiful, appealing, or of more than ordinary significance. That's what the dictionary says arguments. Let's contrast with that with the word popular. What is popular? Suited to or intended for the general masses of people, as in popular music. All right. So, what is one of the lowest, lowest common denominators? Right? What's one of the lowest common denominators? Sex sells. Right? Sex sells. Let's get ready. Let's, let's listen to what Erica Badu said. And I'm going to try to amend this a little bit because she just says what she wants to say. Uh, what she said about women trying to make it in the industry right now, in the music business. She said, first of all, you have to get yourself some breast implants. What's hot is the butt implant. If you really want to rock someone's world, if you want to do well in this business, you have to get a butt implant. Calf implants if you're going to wear stilettos. Grow your hair long, or if you can, get your scalp cut off and have another scalp put on. And you have to wear stilettos. It doesn't matter how young you are, 12, 11, you have to get publicity. Do some whole stuff. If you are a woman, then you have to tongue kiss another woman if you want to make it. Just be butt naked somewhere, butt naked with glitter all over you, and a beaver. <laughs> now, that's, 
obviously is a little exaggerated. But I think she makes the point uh, very clearly. Now, we live in an age where reality TV is just totally exploding. It's just, it's coming out the woodworks. Everybody has an idea for a reality TV show. And it doesn't take very much money to produce, or expertise for that matter, to produce a reality TV show. Um, but you know, the, the history of reality TV, I mean, it's not just like a new thing. This has been around for a long time. Uh, you know, back to the 40s and 50s, we had reality television shows. Now, let's talk about the types of reality TV shows. You have documentary style reality TV shows. Which, including, which includes special living environments, celebrities, professional activities. You have elimination game shows, dating-based competition, job search, sports, self-improvement makeover, renovation, social experiment, dating shows, talk shows, hidden cameras, supernatural, Hoaxes, <laughs> you know. So there's a we have a, a variety of different shows to choose from, such you know, high quality entertainment. So why are these shows so popular? Why do people want to watch these shows? Why is that? And on the shows that I want you to consider this on the shows that where voting, where the audience votes, and where people call in to vote. Whose vote should count anyway? Should everyone's vote count? I know we live in a, you know, a, a representative democracy. But really, those people that I said in media malpractice that didn't even know what the issues were, should they really be able to vote? That's a, that's a question for you to answer. Yeah, I mean, they have rights to vote. Everyone has a right to vote. You can say that. But should they vote if they really don't know what the issues are? And then, my question is, should the general public be allowed to vote that haven't proven that their vote means anything? That's just a... Just a is something I'm, I'm, I'm asking. Branford Marcellus said that if you ever want to guarantee that you'll get the wrong answer on something, just get 100 people in a room and have them vote on it. <laughs> and Stalin, we all remember who Stalin was, said that it's not who votes, it's how the votes are counted. It's not who votes, it's how the votes are counted. Reality TV. I could just do a I could just do a lecture on reality TV. Uh, this is from an article that I found on about.com um, on ethics in reality TV. 
ethics and reality TV. And this is under a section in this article called Humiliation and Entertainment. What we are looking at here is, I think, an extension of schadenfreude, a German word used to describe uh, people's delight and entertainment at the failings and problems of others. If you laugh at someone slipping on the ice, that's schadenfreude. If you take uh, pleasure in the downfall of a company you dislike, that is also schadenfreude. The latter example is certainly understandable, but I don't think what's uh, I don't think that that's what we're seeing here. After all, we don't know the people on reality shows. So what causes us to derive entertainment from the suffering of others? Derive entertainment from the suffering of others. Certainly, there may, uh, there may be catharsis involved. But that is also achieved from fiction. We don't need to see a real person suffer in order to have a cathartic experience. Perhaps we are simply happy that these things are, aren't happening to us. But that seems more reasonable when we see something accidental and spontaneous rather than something deliberately staged for our amusement. That people do suffer on some reality TV shows is beyond question. The very existence of reality programming may be threatened by the increase in lawsuits by people who have been injured and or traumatized by the stunts these shows have staged. One of the reasons such programming is attractive is that it can be much cheaper than traditional shows. But that way, uh, uh, but that may change as insurance premiums for reality TV shows to reflect higher, uh, higher to you users. Uh, I'm sorry, insurers, higher to insurers. This is never any attempt to justify these shows as enriching or worthwhile in any way. Though certainly not every program needs to be educational or highbrow, nevertheless, it does raise the question as to why they are made. Perhaps a clue about what is going on lies in the aforementioned lawsuits. According to Barry B. Lambert, a Los Angeles lawyer who represents one couple, something like this is done for no reason, no other reason than to embarrass people or humiliate them or scare them. The producers don't care about human feelings. They don't care about being decent. They only care about money. There you go. Okay, I want to say this other thing and what he what this uh, writer says is the moral responsibility that we have. He says, finally, what about the re reality TV viewers? If you watch such shows, why? If you find that you are entertained by the suffering and humil humiliation of others, that's a problem. Perhaps an occasional instance wouldn't merit comment, but a weekly schedule of such pleasure is another matter of time. I suspect that people's ability and willingness to take pleasure in such things stem from the increasing separation we experience from others around us. The more, distance we, the more distant we are from each other as individuals, the more readily we can objectify each other and fail to experience sympathy and empathy when others around us suffer. The fact that we are witnessing events not in front of us, but rather on television, uh, where everything 
is uh, has an unreal and fictional air about it, probably aids in this process as well. I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch reality TV programming, but the motivations behind being a viewer are ethically suspect. Instead of passively, passively accepting whatever media companies try to feed you, it would be better to take some time to reflect on why such programming is made and why you feel attracted to it. Perhaps you will find that your motivations themselves are, are not so attractive. Reality TV. Let's talk about youth and image a little bit. Youth and image. Our society glorifies youth. In other parts of the world, old age is valued because of the wisdom that comes with age. In our society, we tolerate the elderly and are constantly reinventing the wheel. We tolerate, we tolerate the elderly. You know? You know, everybody has a thing. You know, they get in a car and an elderly person is driving slow. You know, we, we can all probably remember some feelings that we have um, that might be uh, a tad more than just not tolerated. And a lot of times when older people try to tell us, you know, uh, that, you know, there's a better way to do it, we don't want to listen to them, you know, I don't want to do it that old way. You know, you had your turn. You had your, your chance to do it. You know, that's, you know, that's a kind of a, the, uh, the way that Western society treats the elderly and the wisdom that the elderly have that we do not have. So they should be valued. You go out east, I'm talking far east, you know, old age is a badge. It's a, it is a, uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And people come from miles and miles to talk to someone that is that is older and wiser. But in our society, where information is just a click away, we feel that we can just tolerate the elder. We are so uneducated about history that we repeat the same mistakes over and over. In uh, Brantford, when talking about image in the same documentary film, when, when talking about image, said that today Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder would not get a shot. They're wrong. They're wrong. Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder wouldn't get a shot. Now they're pretty talented, right? But remember, once you know that, that this thing is about commerce, not about the art, then it makes sense. Then it makes sense. I want to contrast. Uh, I want to contrast something. Style over substance. Style versus substance. Now we're 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 involved in art. All of us are involved in art. So so style is important. Style is very important. I mean, without style, what do you have? With, in jazz, without style, what do you have? Right? So style is very important. And we want to play stylistically authentic to whatever we're playing. So style is very important. Style is very important. But style over substance? I think 
think that's a mistake. Style over substance. You know, bling bling, right? Once I found out that um, these hip hop artists didn't own the old, the, their own gold chains that are around their neck, and the cars in their videos, and that a lot of the people on MTV Cribs didn't even own those houses. Once I found that stuff out, and, and people were out in LA and they were renting a Bentley's so that they could appear to be successful. Once I found that out, it made me a little more skeptical about what's really going on and how real this whole bling bling thing is. Get money, right? Get money. Get money. Right, this, these are the lyrics, right? These are the lyrics. So, objectifying women, you know, it's, I mean, come on. Come on. But why does this stuff sell so much? Why does this sell so much? Uh, Bradford says this. He says that in America, we live in this massive state of delusion where the idea of you being something is actually better than actually being that. So if I have some gold chains and I got some spin rims on my car, right, I look like I'm something. So hey, as long as I look like I'm something, then why do I need to be it? You know? So, you know, people that drive Hummers, that live in a one-bedroom apartment. No, this is no, this is regular stuff. This, you don't understand. This is regular stuff. And this is the kind of value system that it creates in our society to have these kind of videos on television promoting that kind of stuff. I saw this video. I, I saw men. I can't even watch BET. I can't even watch BET. I watched this video. And this is the last time I saw BET. There was a video on BET. And, of course, the rappers, they were at their mansion. A bunch of, a bunch of uh, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, scantily clad women with their butts hanging out. Right? And, and just, it's just inappropriate. Just, just stuff that just shouldn't be on television, right? So, in this video, glorifying this, this stuff, knowing that kids are watching this. The, the, in the background, apparently, is this rapper's mansion. And he's on a John Deere tractor with rims. With rims. A rimmed up John Deere tractor with a girl on the back mowing his lawn. You tell me. Come on. This is what's happening. This is what's happening right now in the, in the music business. Emphasis on business, right? I want you. Uh, I want to contrast the story, and I don't want to say this in a way that is uh, offensive. And so, so uh, wear thick skin on this one. 
Uh, I'm an amateur bodybuilder. I've been in the gym as much lately as my schedule been kind of crazy, but I'm getting back in there. And there's a competition called the Mr. Universe competition. I don't know how many people know about this. It's kind of an underground thing. Uh, the only reason that uh, a lot of people know about it now, uh, most people know about it, is because of Arnold Schwarzenegger won it like seven times in a row. Then the guy after him, Lee Hing, won it like seven or eight times in a row. Uh, Rodney, uh, Rodney Coleman, well, Ronnie, Ronnie Coleman, sorry. Ronnie Coleman, uh, guy that is uh, he's 5'11", 300 pounds in show shape, not an ounce of fat or water in his body. Just ridiculous specimen. Just, just doesn't make any sense. Okay, just totally ridiculous. Just a beast, right? He's a monster. And uh, I mean, this guy. I mean, you get by him. This guy's like this wide, and it's just it's just ridiculous. And now I I, I have to say, being an amateur bodybuilder, that. I don't think the general public understands what kind of dedication and sacrifice it takes to become that kind of athlete. It is just totally ridiculous. Now, a lot of us have questions about if these athletes are using steroids or not. But I hope you understand that steroids doesn't mean that you can just take steroids and sit on the couch. And just get huge. I hope nobody thinks that that's actually how steroids work. Actually, with a lot of those performance-enhancing drugs that we keep hearing about in the media, what they do is they reduce the amount of time that you require to recuperate, which means that you can work twice as hard. You can take in more protein, and then your body can synthesize the protein faster and convert it into muscle. It doesn't mean that you get to sit around. It means that you can work harder and you can have to get, to get results faster. That's, that's all that's happening, by the way. So I'm not trying to glorify taking steroids. I'm not telling anybody to take steroids. That's not what's happening. Okay? I'm just saying, I think that that's a big misconception that the media continually, it's like, oh, they're cheating. Or, oh, they're, you know, you shouldn't use steroids because, you know, it's giving you an unfair advantage. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes it so that you can work hard, basically. So, anyhow, Ronnie Coleman, ridiculous specimen, uh, uh, ridiculous athlete. Mr. Universe competition that happens every year. The first place monetary prize is $150,000. That's what it was last year, $150,000. So I think the last time Ronnie won it, he won $150,000. And then the last guys that, that won it after him, they won $150,000. Now that sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? Oh man, $150,000, that's what I'm talking about. Now, but I hope you realize that for these athletes, the $150,000 is not what they're striving for. The $150,000 enables them to be able to live a type of lifestyle that will allow them to spend, you know, to do two-a-days, spending, you know, six, seven hours in the gym every day. That's why they need the bread. They need the money. 
so that they can sustain that kind of lifestyle to be able to stay in the gym. So that's what the $150,000 paid to pay for is their, is their living expenses during the course of the year. That's, what, that's what's happening. Okay? Now, let's contrast all the grueling work that a person has to do, all of the sacrifice, all of the perseverance, all of the sweating, all of the don't want to go to the gym but go anyway, all of the, everything that a person has to go through, all of the injuries, to get to the Mr. Universe competition and to win, the reward is $150,000. Now, let's talk about another show. Let's talk about a reality TV show. You remember the show, The Biggest Loser? The Biggest Loser? You know, people have seen this. Now, on its face, it seems like, oh, yeah, this is kind of positive. Get people that are, you know, uh, uh, that are overweight, get them into being more healthy and more active and everything else. Okay, now, here's the problem for me. Here's the fundamental issue I have. It takes coaxing the person with the possibility of fame and fortune to get them to lose weight. Right? That's what the that's that's basically what the television show is. And guess what the number the, the winner of Big Loser got this past year? Two hundred fifty thousand dollars and a new car. Now, Mr. Universe, self-sacrifice, determination, perseverance, got hundred fifty thousand dollars which they're going to live on. The Biggest Loser gets fame and $250,000 in a new car. It just seems to be something out of balance with, with a system that allows such a lopsided rewarding system. It just seems, that, that to me, it just seems, it seems wrong. Um... You know, in the in the business, we have something that we call an overnight success, right? Everybody's heard this overnight success. But what is overnight success, really? Overnight success really is a person that probably has been busting their butt their whole life, been busting it their whole life, and then finally, a critical mass of people start to recognize that they are talented and that they can do a certain thing. That's an overnight success. So once the person peaks above a certain critical mass, then they're seen as being an overnight success. But that's, that's definitely not the case. There is no really such thing as an overnight success. Whatever, whatever happened with paying your, paying your dues, a person getting opportunity because they worked hard, because they proved themselves over time, and because they're talented. You know, I, I think in the past about some of the shows that I've seen and some of the shows that I watched, um, some of them which were kind of a uh, reality TV type of show or kind of a talent-based show where the audience participated in, 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 in uh, choosing who's going to win the competition. And I went back to Star Search. Anybody remember the show Star Search? Nobody's remembers Star Search. We do? Okay, good. Um, and I think about some of the, the people that were discovered on, on Star Search. Uh, 
uh, I think Dave Chappelle was on Starship Really? Yeah, it's Dave specific. Chappelle was on Starship And that show actually, uh, I, I guess it, it served a purpose. Okay? I thought, I, I thought about the Gong Show. Anybody remember the Gong Show? The Gong Show, and they, if, you was, if you were sad, they gonged you off of there? That's right. That's right. I remember uh, this one time I saw the saxophone player that was on there, and he was doing all of his playing from his knees and stuff. Cat was actually pretty sad, but you know they didn't gong him. Yeah, I think he won the show actually. Um, Showtime at the Apollo. Right? Showtime at the Apollo. Everybody remembers Showtime at the Apollo. And if you was, if the audience didn't like you, who, who came out and got you? What, what was his name? Who's the guy that came out and got you? With the hook? <laughs> it, it hooked around your neck, so oh, you can't not. You hear that? A lot of pressure. And then I think about some of the more modern recapitulations of these shows. America's Got Talent. Remember the, the show America's Got Talent? Okay, so, uh, so this is a show called Britain's Got Talent, right? And there, uh, what's, the, what's the, girl, the lady's name right now? Susan Boyle. That's Susan Boyle that just totally just blew everybody's socks off. She sings pretty good, you know, pretty good pitch, right? But I'm going to tell you what's, what's is, is too bad about this. And that is that uh, I, the feeling is that it's like the judges and the audience were surprised that someone that was of average uh, appearance had talent. And that, that kind, of, kind of became why she's become so wildly successful is because, oh, I guess average looking people. It's because, of course, the media does the best they can to, accompany, to, to put talent in the way that you look. It's a package. It's a package deal. So if somebody's not totally drop-dead gorgeous, you know, size six and drop-dead gorgeous, then, then we're like amazed now that they, that they can sing or they have anything that's important to say. You know, I think that was, uh, that's, that's interesting. And of course, you know, I said I'm here to talk about what's wrong with American Idol. What's wrong with American Idol? I do have a couple commentaries about the show, although I don't really desire to bash the show. I think there have been some uh, talented people that have been on the show, uh, people like uh, Jennifer Hudson. Um, there have been some really talented people on the show. Uh, so as far as that goes, I, I don't have really a fundamental issue as far as that goes. My issue is with, uh, you know, like I have written on the board over here, uh, expert opinion versus star commentary. Expert opinion versus star commentary. Again, this goes back to whose vote should count. Shouldn't the person be knowledgeable, genuinely knowledgeable and educated about what they're, they're, they're judging? before their vote counts, before their vote really means anything? And how about the general public that, that votes on the show? Or the audience? If 
It is your desire. If it is your desire to create. I'm, I'm very sorry. Uh, we're double books. We have a choir rehearsal here. So we're going upstairs. So if you see people looking at the door, looking at you, just do that. Okay. okay. I appreciate a lot. <laughs> So anyhow, back to back to what's wrong with American Idol. Uh, but shouldn't the, the people that are voting, the, the general public, if if it is your desire to really truly discover someone that is exceptional and great, shouldn't the judges be people that have either demonstrated that level of excellence themselves and or are can recognize from an objective perspective? what those things are. And um, so then, uh, you know, American Idol is a cleverly, a cleverly constructed idea and show. You know, a lot of people wish they thought of that, to do it in that, you know, in that way. So it's a very cleverly constructed show. But even with the name alone, American Idol, from a religious perspective, I have a problem with even the name. You know, you know, from a religious perspective, I shouldn't have an idol. And people, contestants, go on American Idol not to be, be the best artist they can be, not to uh, become uh, great as an artist to do something authentic, but rather to become the next American Idol, the person that has fame and fortune. The pursuit of fame and fortune. That is what drives these long lines of people that can't sing even to get in front of these judges for them to tell them that they can't sing. This is what drives these huge crowds of people is this hope of fame and fortune. Art is not about fame and fortune. That's not what art is about. It's not about fame and fortune. It's like Dave Matthews said in the beginning. He said, if making a lot of money is the goal, then you shouldn't do it. If your goal is money and fame, there are a lot easier ways to do that. Just go on Fear Factor or something. You remember this quote from the beginning. And that is the fundamental issue. It's a combination of judging that is not objective and the purpose of getting on the show to become the next idol of the country, the next teenage heartthrob, the next big star. As a musician, as an artist, if you're in this to make money, then maybe you should go on American Idol. But if you're in this because you have something meaningful to say, something that you want to be able to say at the highest level, with the highest degree of artistic integrity and authenticity, 
then you have to find a different motivation than fame and fortune. So that's what I think, what's wrong with American Idol. I want to uh, I want to finish this lecture and then open it up for a, a couple questions uh, with uh, uh, a few paragraphs from Richard Kearney's 20th Century Continental Philosophy. It's the book. 20th Century Continental Philosophy. This is an ad hocism which has seen its counterpart in some forms of contemporary architecture, where some architects have uh, explicitly tried to accommodate their design to the various tastes of demands of a variegated community. Typically, contemporary popular art forms plunder and thereby question the value of the forms of high art, which are often deemed to be obstructively monumental. Modeling themselves on Duchamp whose ready-mades derive their power from the questioning of all modes of originality, contemporary artists frequently sample or repeat the great works of the past. In fact, as a result of this, much of the popular cultural, cultural product, which goes under the name of the postmodern in our time, is, uh, is actually simply a continuation of the modern. It is frequently characterized by fragmentation instead of unity, by intertextuality or autoreferentiality uh, instead of reference, by the prioritization of the signifier over the signified, and similar tropes and figures as we found in Joyce, Proust, Mann, Gid, Picasso, Kandinsky, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and others. There is an important distinction, however. If the illusions and cultural cross-references made in contemporary popular art are not grasped by an audience, then so be it. There is nothing to be gained by such knowledge, which could only allow for the self-satisfying congratulation of narcissistic self-recognition and self-legitimation as a connoisseur. The fundamental argument here is based upon a rather cheerful degradation of knowledge or at least a degradation of knowledge as fact in favor of knowledge as event. Knowledge here has become nothing more than the next byte on the computer screen, the next 30,000 pixel image, the next software package. It is important to indicate that this is as much an effect of the te uh, technology of the postmodernity as it is of any philosophical determinants of the cultural practices of postmodernism. For the philosopher or intellectual assumes that his or her position is to be that of the critic who, whose criticisms are based upon knowledge, enlightenment, the pursuit of truth, or at least of the better arguments in the interest of the construction of a rational society. This surely provokes a dismal pessimism. That's Richard Kearney. So what's wrong with American Idol? Pop culture. Popular culture is what's wrong with American Idol. That's it. Any questions? Or just comments? Or just discussions or anything? Go ahead. Um, 
things, uh, be able to draw a person's face exactly like it looks like a photo. Okay, these were things that were values, but what happened is technology replaced the need for an artist to be able to do things that were objective. And so now what happens is when people go back and look at an abstract painting of Picasso or something, they want to go and do what Picasso did when he was doing this abstract. But they don't realize that Picasso could paint a person's portrait exactly, that he could draw a straight line freehand, or that he could draw a circle free. They don't realize that because they just want to do this, this end product, this thing that it took him his whole life to decide that he wanted to do that. It took a lot of growth and a lot of different things to get there. And, uh, but he ends, ends by saying that uh, this last sentence, which I think is uh, uh, the sentence that I was really going for, and he says, for the philosopher or intellectual who assumes that his or her position is to be that of the critic, who criticize, whose criticisms are based upon knowledge, enlightenment, the pursuit of truth, or at least of the better arguments in the interest of the construction of a rational society, this surely provokes a dismal pessimism. He's, I mean, he's, saying, <laughs> he's saying if you're out here trying to do this for the right reasons, and you think that your opinion, and your opinion really is valuable, and it's valuable for the right reasons, and for the, you're pursuing truth, you're trying to make the right arguments, you're trying to make yourself better. The current state of events, as he said, provokes a dismal pessimism. And this was uh, a few years ago that he wrote this. Let's, let's go back to the first thing. Uh, what, what was your opinion of the game, like you were mentioning, the, the bodybuilding competition? Uh, I mean, somebody who, who's just into wanting to train may not want to compete or be in a competition. They're just doing it for themselves, but they do it so that they can continue training because that pays for their living would, uh, what, what would your opinion be on the same thing in music? Like, if I went and played on Britney Spears' next record, made enough money to open my own studio and do what I wanted for 10 years? I don't have any problem with that. Britney Spears has a lot of good musicians that actually work with her and good producers. So I have no problem with that. My, my problem is more with uh, a popular media that would promote her stuff um, so heavy as if she is the second coming. You know, that, that you know, uh, Billy Holiday ain't got nothing on Britney Spears. <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald, Ella Fitz who? <laughs> Britney Spears. That's my issue. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, because I play all kinds of different music in all kinds of different settings. And I could, I could do a whole, I could do like a whole lecture on certain, uh, certain things that I'm, that I have noticed from working in a lot of uh, kind of modern uh, modern churches, where a lot of the pop culture stuff is starting to infect and influence the way that certain, you know, a lot of mega churches, the way that they operate, where a lot of times the focus is on getting people in the congregation, and so then people start talking about stuff like worship friendly. These songs are not worship friendly songs. We can't do them. In other words, they're not songs that appeal to enough people for them to be interested in the worship experience. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of this kind of stuff in our culture is influencing, influencing, infiltrating, you know, everything. You know, it's, it's just, it's getting in everywhere. Uh, go ahead. So you mentioned that, that we have poor, poor, poor knowledge of history. That's, that's true. Most people are based based their opinions on pop culture. Do you feel that we can ever reverse this? I, 
I think that um, I, I think that Richard Kern, Kearney is, is, is correct, but I also think that there always is um, you know, the possibility that some things, some events can occur that cause people to open their eyes a little bit more. Um, but you know, the beautiful thing about what we're doing is, is artists that are approaching this from an authentic perspective is what we do has the potential to open their eyes to actually look into something deeper. That's why it's important that we continue to pursue excellence and continue to study the authentic things and to get knowledgeable about things in history. It's because then we can be the people that say something to somebody that actually opens them up to actually open the book, going and doing some research, getting into some stuff that's meaningful. You know, uh, yeah. So I, I don't think that it's it's hopeless. But, but I do think that if, uh, if people uh, continue to allow the mass media to, to convince them of what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing, I think that I think we're in trouble. I think we're in real trouble. Go ahead. I had a question about the authenticity that we were talking about a little bit. And you were saying about uh, Rolling Stones, how I thought you said that like the best rock band couldn't be from England because rock and roll grew up in America. Yeah. Where would that put a guy like, say, Eric Clapton playing blues that's an American art form and kind of an African-American? I don't think, look, I don't think that you can't be great, but my, my question is, can you be the greatest? And, and, and the point is, is that what is the criteria by even establishing even what rock and roll means? It can't be British. It can't be British. It has to be American. And it's not like the Rolling Stones came to America, studied with the heaviest rock and roll guys, and then got their, you know, really got their craft together, and then came out. That's not what they did. They listened to American records in Britain, and they came over with their, their tape on. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not hating on that. Again, my issue, again, is not with the artist. It's with the media's representation of the artist. That's that's what my issue is. But <laughs> but you know what? But why not? Or a queen? Just but somebody that like actually. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think. I mean, people in general are too stupid to understand that the music they listen to on the radio isn't really good. So well, how do we? It has to do with education. It has to do with the sophistication of the audience, which comes from parents, it comes from schools, it comes from it comes from all of that. But one one second, I have to go here first. Uh, I have two questions or two comments. One is uh, like I agree. I think that a lot of people are dumb when it comes to arts. Like it's just I think that 
in, in the case of the arts, I just think people are getting dumber as time goes on. Like the, the smart or the cultured people get more cultured and smarter, and they keep getting better, but the audience just keeps diminishing. Yeah, it's because of the whole society, I think. And my other thing was saying, I was going to say, like, so if a British guy can't be the best rock and roll player, does that mean, like, a Chinese guy can't be the best jazz musician? Is that, like, impossible? Or, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, does it have to be an African-American be the best jazz musician? Well, let's, let, no, let's, let's qualify this. Because uh, they started it. Well, well, I would, I, I would have to say, um, I, I would say yes and no to the to, to the question. Um, here's 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 the thing. If the only if the only uh, qualification is uh, technical proficiency, um, uh, if the only qualification is faithful transmission of a tradition, uh, if the only qualification is, uh, you know, a completely objective list of things, then I could say, from an objective, I'm playing the correct notes, and my notes are good note choices, and I can justify them, then I think that everybody can be equally great. But, you have to factor in cultural elements because music is cultural. It's not just, it's, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, you, it, it is, it is a, I think, a necessary uh, requirement and a, a necessary component that authenticity not just be based on, as we said, uh, based on just proficiency. So, but what if, but I'm not. But I don't. I I wouldn't go so far as to say the white and black thing. Well, because that I wouldn't go. I, I wouldn't go as far as that. My, it's a cultural thing. Remember, so it's not a skin color. This is a cultural. Thing. So if an Asian guy grew up in yeah. a black neighborhood, yeah, he'd be a better jazz musician. Well, well, well. I mean. Actually, what's happening? Well, yeah, but what's actually what's happening right now in the black community is not a whole lot of of uh, musicians are really uh, educated in jazz and are pursuing that path. Most of the African American musicians are pursuing hip hop. Is there a jazz culture today? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, but most of the jazz culture exists within universities. Yeah. Yeah. You had a question. I was going to say, uh, there, I saw something online that, that was saying India has more honors students than America has students. That, that, is, that is an alarming, alarming, alarming statistic. They have more honors students than we have students, which, which makes... It just—I don't—I don't want to say the word dumb. I think that's a bad word. I think it's uneducated and unenlightened. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. And, um, and you know, if you don't grow up in a house that, you know, if my parents didn't listen to to any jazz music, I would have never gotten exposure to it. I mean, the American public 
unfortunately, is the byproduct of, of just being a bunch of lemmings. They have to follow what's there because they're not taught to, to pursue something different. They had something else to support inside of them. And, and as I said before, even the word different doesn't really mean anything. Because different is within this parameter that's about like this. Versus if you really know history and you know about some stuff, then different is like this. Go, 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 go ahead. Uh, I mean, this argument, I think, could also be applied to like, the, all the classical kids that are getting music and degrees that don't really think about jazz. They're going to be working in the public school system and to teach the jazz band. They don't know anything. They literally don't know anything about jazz. Well, yeah, a lot of people don't know uh, much about jazz. But um, there's a lot of jazz musicians that don't know anything about classical, too. Man. Okay? So. I mean, you have to, everybody has to be willing to learn something that they're not proficient in. They, they gotta be willing to learn something that's not native or natural to them. That's a, yeah, that's like a whole other subject. I know that MENC has done a lot lately about not necessarily trying to integrate jazz requirements into the curriculum nationally, just like, and if you remember MENC, like you're really encouraged to learn about jazz, even if you just go like a lecture. So, I mean, that's, that's definitely an issue, and at least some of the important people know about it. Because a lot of music educators are going into schools not knowing anything about jazz, and then they have to lead a jazz band or start a jazz band program, and they don't know. Yeah, well, it's like, I mean, if I'm real big into jazz and I don't know anything about classical, I can hear it being forced for four or five years to learn about classical. None of the classical people are being forced to learn about jazz. I think, I think, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think an interesting point here is think about how long ago jazz was introduced in the university setting. Think about how long ago classical music was introduced in the university setting. We're still, time, I think time will get, I think time can get there, but I mean, people like us need to push that along. Yeah, that's right. Jazz isn't that old. Yeah, classical has how many years on jazz? Proportions, proportions. Let's talk about proportions. All right, I think that's all we have time for. Thanks for coming.